Good morning. Happy Saturday morning. This is Carl Forehand, and I'm also here with Jason Elam. Say hello, Jason. Hey, Carl. Hey, everybody. This, this is a joint podcast, and we want to get it going as quick as we can and get as much into it as we can. I have um, not avoided but uh, delayed having Jason on my podcast because I knew our stories were really similar. I knew we had a lot to talk about. But um, I told him even this morning that I'm nervous to do this because uh, I assume it's going to it might go deep and um, but I think we're ready for it. I think the things over the past month or so that I've gone through have prepared me for this, and we're just going to dive into it. You have anything to say before we start, Jason? I'm just excited to talk to you again, Carl. You're you're my friend, and so I think this is just going to be a fun conversation that we get to share with some other people. Yeah. So this is part one of two, and part one is about the church. Jason's been interviewing some people about the future of the church and so on and what it looks like. So we're going to talk about the church for a little while. The first uh, thing I wanted to explore, Jason, is, is sometimes, I don't know if you went through this in your church, but we would always say, keep the main thing the main thing. Um, and that main thing uh, in most evangelical churches is evangelism, um, where we're postured towards new members. Um, what do you, what do you think about that word evangelism where you're at today? Uh, as far as the future of the church, um, is it still a thing? Is it a thing? Um, what do you think about them? I think it is. I just think we misunderstood the meaning of the word from the beginning. You know, when I got Mm. I hate the term, but when I got saved as a seven-year-old at the Church of the Nazarene near Dayton, Ohio, it was in response to a altar call where mm-hmm. I had been I had been held over, dangled over the fires of hell, mm-hmm. and told that if I just prayed this prayer, I didn't have to go to hell when I died. So I would have done anything they told me. And so I went up there and I I knelt and I cried and I prayed and soon after was baptized in that church. And to them, that was evangelism. Mm-hmm. And so that's the understanding that I grew up with of what evangelism looked like. You know, when we heard, when I heard that expression, keep the main thing, the main thing, it was all about souls, right? Rescuing mm-hmm. people from the fires of hell. And so right. I don't, I don't agree with that anymore. That's not what I would think of as evangelism, but the word evangel, it's a messenger of good news, right? Mm-hmm. The, it's that gospel word, that good news word. And so what would be good news now? Well, in my understanding right now, it's that God already loves you and accepts you. There's nothing you Mm. have to do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to change it. You can't lose it and you can't make him love you anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is good news that sets people free. And I think it's still important to share that good news. But honestly, I don't think anybody has to pray a prayer. I don't Mm -hmm. think they have to join a church. I think right. honestly, when when I was as a pastor for over twenty years, when I would talk about keeping the main thing a main thing and keeping souls in front of people, honestly, I would have never said this then, and I probably didn't think it was true then. But I think there's an ulterior motive. It's really just about growing an organization. That's right. It's about <laughs> growing a machine because yeah. every soul you bring into the church adds to the offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it adds to the prestige or influence of the church in your community. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's an ulterior motive. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a hard thing for us to see when our salary depends on us never seeing it. 
Right. More often than not, it's kind of like a multi-level marketing organization. We're keeping people, like you say, in the seats. Uh, and too many churches are kind of emptying out one side uh, and filling out on the other. And if it's an organization, then it needs people. Um, maybe um, the main thing, evangelism, Jesus said, go and make disciples, go and make learners. And, and I think you're right. Teach them the good news. Teach them the good news that God loves you. And, uh, you know, I, I just struggle a lot these days with, is it, you know, is evangelism even a thing? Um, so you did a great job of explaining that. I don't have to explain much. Um, what about the thought? I had this thought a few months ago that people can be addicted to church. Um, people ask me, do you miss preaching? I said, yeah, I miss it a lot. And I wonder if it's to a certain extent that I, I have kind of a low-grade addiction to that, to that that rush. And here's how I see it, Jason, uh, being addicted to church. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely come a possibility. In, yeah, people come in, and, you know, they say uh, they get a rush out of what happens there. It makes them feel good. Everything's geared to make them feel good. Um they leave, they go home, and they experience life, and then they start rehearsing for next week. And people would literally tell me, uh, as a pastor, thanks for my fix. They literally use those words. Uh, what do you think about all that? Uh, I think it's scary. And I think mm. pastors are probably the most susceptible to the church addiction because when we get up in front of people, it does something for the ego that mm. probably is very unhealthy. It's right. probably really very toxic for us because we had a platform where we could go up and literally be elevated above everyone else in the room. And if someone else were to start talking or a baby start crying or whatever during our lecture, they are immediately shushed. And quieted mm. down. Why? Because the man of God is speaking. Mm. And I think that does really bad things to a human being. I think that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so I think there is an, an ego addiction for the preacher, but also it's very isolating. You know, whenever anybody gets put on a pedestal, whether they be a celebrity, an athlete, or a preacher, Mm -hmm. You become very isolated. There's an image that you feel like you have to live up to, and it right. keeps you from ever being genuine with anyone, which is the most lonely thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was but I'll tell you what ter terrifies me, Carl, is that I've seen that addiction play out in the membership as well. And, and there's that high addiction that you were just talking about. Let's say you're in a Pentecostal or a charismatic environment, mm -hmm. and it's all about worship and getting you up into the stratosphere where you quote unquote, feel the presence of God. And, and that absolutely is, uh, is a fix that we need. And, and, you know, people would come to church on Wednesday night and they'd say, I couldn't go Sunday to Sunday without my fix. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the negative side of that. There's the side that uh, the churches that I kind of was uh, leading in most of my ministry were Southern Baptist or more conservative churches where we just beat the hell out of people on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes you feel like a worm. And people think they deserve that right. because they feel guilty about all the rules they violated through the week. And so they come in to get their beat down. And that's mm. an addiction, too. That's right. I mean, it's basically spiritual BDSM. Right. Yeah. That's um, 
Yeah, it's scary. Uh, I think you're right. It is. It is scary. And and I don't. I don't know if we know that we're doing it. I don't. You know, the, even just the part of I've got to tell you some bad news. I want to convince you of something bad about yourself so that I can give you a solution. I don't think we did that consciously. But I think as a pastor, you got to be really honest and say uh, it happened, right? And and people got used to that cycle, and maybe even that it's it's close to a cycle of abuse. Um, and we just we just did it because that was the pattern we were taught, and we did it subconsciously. Um, but yeah, it is. It's kind of scary. Yeah, I want to make it clear. I'm not. I don't attribute any negative motives to the pastors mm-hmm. who engage in that. Like I said, for 20-something years, that was my life. That's right. I didn't know I was doing it. It's like with any other addiction. You can't see its destructive power mm-hmm. at work in your life until you get through it. Yeah, you've got to get on the outside right. and, and not be yeah looking at it face-to-face. What was the worst part of your church addiction? What was the hardest part for you about not being in church? I, I think— it's a combination. I think you mentioned it when you said uh, you get that positive feedback. I mean, so, um, part of, you know, you mentioned also that, that the being a pastor is isolating. So who can you tell your stuff to? Um, who can, but so you're so isolated, you feel kind of alone, kind of out there. Not really able to get real close to people, and then people hurt you. Um, but one thing you can always you, you always have is that positive feedback that comes um, from the show. You know, it comes from that Sunday morning experience. That's one time when people. Well, just the the simple fact that people listen to you, right? You have right. Uh, eighty, a hundred people, or two hundred people, or however big your church is. Yet those people that come to hear what you have to say, and they listen to you for forty minutes. So I, I think that I think that's a powerful thing that that we don't think about that much. We just think it's a normal part of business. But um, you know that people look up to you, that people listen to to your suggestions, even though they might be way off base. Um, that you know it's it's attention, right? Right. There's that whole man of God complex, right? Where people come to you for counseling and and you and I were talking about this yesterday and I'm Mm -hmm. sure we'll talk about it more later, but people come to you for counseling and assume you have something valuable to say because you're the guy who stands up front on Sunday and has your life together. Mm -hmm. But I I know that I'm not speaking for you or any other pastor, but man, that was definitely not the case in my life. Yeah, I did not have it all together. Maybe I looked like I had it all together. Maybe they assumed it because I literally was elevated in the room above other people standing mm-hmm. on a platform. Right. Maybe they thought because I had a Bible in my hand that I, back then we all assumed was inerrant and was the word of God and that I seemed to know it better than they did, mm-hmm. that they uh, could get you know solid biblical counseling from me. But man, pastors are not counselors, and it's really dangerous when we confuse those roles. That's right. And, and I think if I could wish anything immediately— um, I would say we should stop doing that um, because they just don't have the training. And even when I went through spiritual leadership coaching uh, with Henry Blackaby and in a reputable, you know, coaching type of experience, they still 
you know, we still only went back to the resources we had, which was, well, you need to read your Bible more. You need to come to church more. You need to have a quiet time. Well, do you have sin in your life? Um, we never got to the root issues and we weren't qualified to. Um, so yeah, I, w- I would wish for that also. What about the services of the church? Um, do we still need them? So let me take you back to the 1930s and 1950s, where everything was, you know, farmers farmed 80 acres of ground. People were centered around smaller communities and things began to develop and so on. But we got through the Great Depression and and just imagine that time when there's a little church and everybody in that community comes to that church and one guy that has some education stands up and delivers a sermon, right? And so the, the purposes of the church might be discipleship, worship, fellowship, service, couldn't put in evangelism, and sometimes communion, depending on what type of church you're in. But things have changed and in our society. Do we still need to go to a place and submit, I'm using air quotes, to clergy to get those things? To get my discipleship, my worship, my fellowship with other people, community, you might want to call that, um, my service that I, where I can serve people, I can help other people. Um, do I need to come to a building to get those services? Well, I think it's like you, you, you kind of alluded to it in the question, right? I mean, mm-hmm. are we really called by God to submit to a professional class of clergy? Mm-hmm. I don't see it. I think that's an, it's the antithesis of the gospel. It separates believers from one another, having you know a first-class citizen and a second-class citizen, and maybe a third-class citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we have to come in and submit to someone else for our spiritual you know, covering. Oh man, I hate that term covering. Mm. It's so destructive. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Our spiritual authority. Well, I'm sorry. I really thought that God and that Jesus were our spiritual covering and authority. Mm -hmm. And so when we, when we started mistaking, um, the person up front for the spiritual covering that became very destructive. So the services the church provides as far as, you know, like a Sunday morning service from 10 to 12, I've, for the last several years, I've really struggled to find anything like the Sunday morning, the the typical American Sunday morning worship service, even in Scripture. Hmm. I mean, there's just nothing like that. We a gathering where we come in and have the laser light show and the and the fog machine and and the air conditioning and sing <laughs> our songs and then listen yeah. to sometimes gifted, sometimes not very gifted lecturer, stand up front to tell us what God has to say. Right. Uh, I don't think that was Christ's intent for the New Testament church at all. And even but if, at the it, same time, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Even if go you ahead. need that, uh, especially the sermon, um, I was driving an hour to hear Brian Zahn speak on Sunday mornings, which was good, right? He's a great communicator. Yeah. fantastic. Um, but... It took me an hour to get there, an hour to get home. I could listen to Brad Jerzak on the way. I could listen to, you know, if I wanted to, I could stay at home and hear Brian preach the same message on TV. Um, and then I could listen to someone else coming home. 
Plus, I spent an hour driving to work every day so I can listen to two podcasts at least every day, um, you know, of a good discussion of something that taught me, that discipled me, that helped me. Um, so do do I still need to go? Why do I need to? I, I can't I can't make sense of it anymore. Why do I need to go to a building to hear a speaker speak, to hear music played that that I can't think of very much there except the youth? What I struggle with is the youth, right? Yeah. Except the youth functions that I can't get somewhere else. Now, I kind of wonder if Jesus was here, you know, what would he do? You know, where would he quote unquote, go to church. Right. And that's, that's kind of a question we have for later, but, but that, I think that's my struggle is, is I, number one, there's all kinds of triggers at church for us that my wife and I've been through some pain in 20 years. We've, we've gone through all that stuff. There's a lot of triggers there. Um, things remind us of other things and people say, well, that's the world. That's how it is. Well, you're promising me something better if I come to church. <laughs> if it's the same thing, then why does it matter? But right. but also, you, you know, I go to to good churches, to people that have changed their theology, they're, they're preaching good stuff and things like that. They're maybe even singing songs that a little more line up with what I believe. But why do I need to go to a place to right. get those services? Why do I, why do I need to invest money? You know, it's the average is a thousand a year for a churchgoer. So if you have a thousand people, that's a million dollars. Why do we need to pour a million dollars into a church that seventy percent of it goes to salaries and building, which we really don't need? Does right. that make any sense at all? Yeah, it does. It reminds me of the, I think it's the Bishop Desmond Tutu who said that every local church needs a letter of recommendation from the poor in their community. Mm. Um, if there, are, Listen, there are churches that are doing significant work in right. addiction. That's They're right. work, uh, doing significant, I'm thinking of Josh Lawson up in Portsmouth, Ohio. Mm. Uh the church that he is serving right now up there it is doing incredible things. They do a free market for their community. They do addiction recovery help. They do all kinds of things that are geared towards the community. It's not about feeding a machine, paying salaries, and keeping a building open. Um, but what I ran into when we tried to make the changes you're talking about to be, you know, at least less toxic, mm-hmm. um, that people don't want to give a lot of money. If you're not talking about building a great church, right? Building a building, right? Right. Yeah. Building a, a church of influence in the community. Hmm. And you asked, and this is a question I know you have planned for later. Would Jesus go to church? I think he would, but I think the, the church he went to would look nothing like the churches that we're talking about. Right. I think uh, Jesus would find church under the overpass downtown mm-hmm. with the homeless. He'd right. find it uh, at the gay bar. Yeah. He'd find it in, uh, in the biker gang. He'd find it with the victims of human trafficking mm-hmm. as he led them to freedom. I think church just has a different connotation in our understanding than it ever did to Jesus yeah. or would today. But when that's we, an assumption on my part. Yeah. When we wrote about that 
topic I wrote about with Jesus Go to Church because we were sitting in a diner on Sunday morning and I saw a, a Santa Claus looking guy, you know, <laughs> made me think about God somehow, but he was just visiting with people in that cafe. And my thought was that's what Jesus would look like on Sunday morning. That And, and then when Laura wrote her part to that topic, would Jesus go to church? She said, yeah, he would. He'd be where people are. And and he might be in our churches uh, occasionally because that's where people are. Just for the simple fact that that's where the people are, uh, he would be with them. But like you say, probably more likely he would be um, where the poor and the hurting are. And I, I agree with you that some churches do that um, and do it well. And I'm thankful for that. I'm saying, why do we have to do all the other stuff just to do that? You know, why can't we right. focus yeah, more on that? So um, I, I think maybe I'm assuming you might want to throw this next question out. But so our solution a lot of times is to go back. Okay. Um, so, okay, let's, some of the people I've been involved with go back to the fifties, go back to the good old days, you know, when we just sang good old hymns and we just, you know, did good old nothing for the poor and just, you know, <laughs> kind of sat around and, and looked at our navels and no, that's negative. I'm sorry, but we, <laughs> we, we, you know, go back to the fifties, but some would say, no, let's go back to the first century. Let's do it like they did. Um, or let's go back to orthodox practices. That's real popular right now, right? We'll get back liturgical. To the, yeah, we'll get more liturgical and get back to that stuff. And I'm not saying there's not any benefit in that. But um, my thought is, you know, I don't you know if you remember when we, we watched Star Trek. Um, and they had the little communicators, which, right. which amount to a flip phone, which is now obsolete. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the fact that I hold a smartphone in my hand where I can watch sermons, I can do videos, I can communicate, I can do, it's just like limitless what I can do with that. In other words, the times have changed and, and doing church now uh, should be different, right? And right. do, you, do you think that? Do you think that maybe it, we should go back to a certain point in time that would help or not? Well, you know, I think my initial response coming out of organized church was, let's go back to the first century church. They actually had it right. Yeah. Um, but then I realized they didn't have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so I don't necessarily want to go back and do it the exact way they did. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think our teenagers today may have needs that didn't exist during the yeah. first century. Yeah. I think our children may have needs that didn't exist during the first century. I love the idea behind it because I think genuine community can be found house to house sharing meals. I right. love that. I don't know that we should think that's all we should ever do. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, we have technology now. That's wonderful. I think the the downside of technology is it helps us not need people. Right. Um, you can you can get all you need for your personal you know encouragement and uplifting. Like you said, you can listen to Brian's on from wherever in the world you choose to do that now. Mm-hmm. But at some point, if you're anything like me, Carl, you're going to need somebody to call you on your crap. And yeah. uh, and I'm not and I'm not talking about a spiritual covering or authority. I'm talking about a brother or a sister that loves you 
and can say, hey, are you feeling okay? Because you're kind of seeming like you're operating out of ego right now yeah. or, you know, operating out of offense or you yeah. seem depressed. You need we need real life connections. Right. Some of us have been conditioned to find those best in a church setting. Wonderful. Do right. that. My friend Bo Hoffman loves his church. It's very life giving. I'm excited that he's found that. Yeah. We attend a church here in Florida where the people are genuinely concerning, uh, concerned about one another, really loving each other, very affirming, very inclusive, mm-hmm. looking for a role for everybody to do something. I think that's fantastic. Um, but like you said, do we have to feed the machine in order to have real community? I think that's the yeah. real question. Yeah. And sometimes it's a combination of both. I think that technology allowed me to connect with Todd Vick and Rick Pickcock. And then when I went to South Carolina this past month, then we actually got to sit down and think together and reason together um, and encourage one another. So I think you, I think you need both, right? Absolutely. And, yep. and one can facilitate the other. So let's talk about cost a little bit. I mentioned it before. Um, average, the the statistics I read said eight, you know, people give 800 to $1,400 a year. So we say that's $1,000 a year. Um, for a thousand people, that's a million dollar budget. 50% of it goes to salary, 20% to the building, 10 to programs, and the rest is miscellaneous. So, um, and, and when we talk about the church, we talk about what we accomplish as a group. We say, well, with all of that, we get to, you know, we, get, we went on this mission trip last year, right? We did that. We did this thing for the homeless. Um, but my focus kind of, I'm, I'm kind of logical and I kind of go to, but, but what if you didn't have to pay those salaries? Or, or what if you just had the administrative salaries? What if you just had half of that salaries, had a much smaller building, a headquarters kind of thing, and you could not funnel all of that money through the church? Um, 20, uh, $50 billion is a rough estimate of what we give in, in the United States. So what could $25 billion do? You know what I mean? And people still have to administer those programs, but uh, I keep going back to this. Half of the money is going to the building, the salaries, and it's mainly for the Sunday morning service with a few things sprinkled in throughout the week. And some churches do better than others, but I got, I got to wonder if we couldn't spend that money better. Oh, what absolutely. Of course we could. What yeah. Thoughts? And I, I, okay. Great example. All right. Most churches in Alabama, uh, where I did most of my ministry there, I think the average Sunday morning attendance is about 80, 80 people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the statistics, uh, the, the percentage of the money that comes in, in the offering is so much higher in a church like that, that goes towards the overhead, the building, the insurance, the utilities, the programs, the salaries. Mm-hmm. It's it's probably 90 to 95%. Mm-hmm. They are effectively having no impact to the poor in their community. Right. Um, there's a mega there's a mega church based in Birmingham, have campuses all over the place now. It's the fastest growing church in the United States, last I checked. Uh, they are debt free. 
They have mil- multi-million dollar campuses all over the state of Alabama and beyond. Mm-hmm. They are doing a lot of good in their community. They've got a, a healthcare center that they've opened up and a dental facility and a homeless facility. They're doing a lot of good things with probably 10 to 20% of what comes in. But what could we do with 50% or 75%? If we cut that overhead, if we get rid of the machine of ministry. Mm -hmm. Now, the argument is we've got to have the machine in order to mobilize the giving to help anybody. Mm. But what I found is you actually motivate people to get involved in a variety of ways with their time, their talent, and their treasure— through relationships much more than you would in a Sunday morning setting. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm kind of saying is, what if 10 or 12 of us got together and we're praying and we're meeting regularly, we're talking about what God's doing in our lives, we're talking about uh, the people who have needs around us, and instead of giving $1,000 a year each to a church building program, salaries, all that stuff, what if instead— We pooled our resources, and when we heard about a family that was about to lose their home, Mm -hmm. we we saved their home. Yeah, we just helped them. Or the the single mom who's got cancer, who's about to file bankruptcy, paid off her debts. Hmm. To me, that has a much greater impact. And there's a relationship behind it, Mm -hmm. which I thought was the whole point of all of this. Yeah. Is relationships. Yeah. I think that's great, man. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about healing. Um, sermon I listened to by Sarah Bessie one time, said, she said, um, I left the church because there was no room for my grief. Um, like we said, many churches do admirable things with you know, 12-step programs, some things like that, right? People that people that are on staff in churches love people, obviously, right? I mean, why else would they be there? Or they wouldn't be there, yep. They're also working very hard, um, sometimes too hard. It's not that they don't care about that grief, but... Uh, what's your opinion of that when she says there's there's just no room? And I think what she meant by that, the way I interpreted was there, there's just not a program for you. Like we talk about a lot to have lots of questions. You know, you can have a certain amount of questions, but we don't really have time to answer all those questions. But we also don't have time for people with too many problems. Right. There's just, and it's not, again, it's not that pastors and staff members of churches don't care. Right. It's that the system's wrong. It's, yeah. it's not set up right. It, it, it pays, a, pays a lot of salaries to do the show, but hardly ever has room for mental health counseling or uh, coaching or life skills, you know. And everybody has an exception, but my church does this. But I'm saying in general, that that system doesn't allow for that grief. What What do you say? Yeah, I think that's right. I think when you build a system 
around having the answer, there is no room for questions. Hmm. I remember uh, in my most ego-driven state of ministry, it would really annoy me when people would ask questions that seemed to suggest things were not as simple as the Bible Mm -hmm. (laughs) teaches or as I was teaching out of the Bible. The reality is everything is more complicated than we think it is Mm -hmm. from the pulpit. Everything. Every situation is different. Every person has to interpret what's happening to them in the context of the filters and biases that have been built into their life through their trauma, their personal trauma. Mm -hmm. And so there are no cookie cutter answers. And the Sunday morning show is only good at cookie cutter answers. Mm. That's all. I mean, even if, even if they're different answers than what you would have gotten at the church down the street, there's still wild generalizations that cannot possibly be accurately applied to everyone. Mm. And so we don't have room for questions. Questions are put down. They're stopped. Um, which, which holds us back. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that has kept the church from evolving to a place of dealing with real hurts and real pains because we don't make room for people's questions or the struggle, especially in charismatic and uh, Pentecostal church life. It's all about confessing and, um, manifesting the positive Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, you speaking that you fake it until you feel it. Right. Right. It was a common phrase that was used back in the day. So I, I think we tend to get at that point. So let's say you come to me, Jason, you're you're a church member, and you come to me um, with an issue. I've got this issue in my life. I think a lot of times what we do then is spiritual bypassing. So then we say things like God's in control or even I'll pray for you. That's It's a form of spiritual bypassing. Um, that's putting you off to say, I may or may not pray for you, but uh, I don't have time, right? So God, right. God is in control. Um, this is meant for your good. All those little phrases we have that that just bypass the issue. And, and, and it's unfair to both parties because right. the person with the problem comes really expecting you know the answers because, again, you're the person up front. Mm-hmm. But also that puts pressure on you to know things you couldn't possibly know That's right. about every parishioner's situation That's right. and how they can find relief. That's it's right. unfair to everybody. It's just a it's just a serious, a fatally flawed system. Yeah. And what what we really need is to set with each other. We need to say, um, you know what, that, that sucks. And I'm I'm going to set with you. And you know what? I've been through similar things, which a pastor can ne- could hardly ever say. It was real hard to say that, that, that I'm struggling with the same thing right now. And the, after the gasp, right. And they pass out, you know, we're not, you know, you <laughs> right. know what I mean? So, so we bypass it. We, we don't really, you know, we guilt people. We shame people for leaving the church and we say, well, you should be getting your healing here, but we're not finding it there. And in many cases, this is what I want to talk about next. In many cases, we're getting re-injured at church yep. because right. of that spiritual bypassing, because of, um, you know, all kinds of different things. We're, we're getting re-injured and we're telling people, you know, but... But that's why you should come here. This is your family. This is where you find healing. And we're trying to say real subtly, but I'm not. 
and, and it's it's not working and I'm not finding healing there. And then we get more shame. Like, what are you just, you're just bashing the church. No, I'm not bashing the church. I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm just trying to find some healing. I'm trying to get better. So I wanted to ask you, I wanted to make sure we had some time to do this. Um, is there anything that you would like to share? Just a personal story of when you were hurt by church. Um, that that should be willing to share. Well, I I think most of my wounds from my church years were self inflicted. I really do, Carl. Mm. Um, I think the people that I got to serve, I pastored mostly very tiny churches. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the churches that I pastored for three years had twelve people when I got there. And now it grew some during that time. And, you know, there would be the old addition, then subtraction, then division, then multiplication, Mm -hmm. Uh, church math, you know, that would take place there. But most of my experience was with wonderful people who, if I had been more transparent, probably would have really supported me in that. But Mm -hmm. I was trapped in a very difficult marriage during those years. Mm -hmm. Um, I've mentioned in other podcasts about how my wife at that time, I had been a missionary in Romania. I had gone over there um, right after a really messy breakup and married a Romanian within just three months of, of getting over there. Mm. And we rushed into a marriage that we weren't prepared for. We didn't know each other well at all. She was looking for an escape from her, her family life. I was looking, I was definitely on the rebound, but also just ready to move on with my life. Hmm. And I didn't know that she had been horribly, horribly abused Hmm. by one of her parents to the point that she was locked in a birdcage overnight and beaten with a fireplace poker Hmm. uh, or watch her mother be beaten with a fireplace poker in front of her, wondering if her mother was dead or alive, lying in a puddle of her own blood and urine. Hmm. Um. I didn't know all the trauma she'd been through. How can right. you possibly know that when you rush into something, you know? Right. But so I'm dealing with the overflow of all of her trauma in my private life at home while these folks in the church uh, are expecting me to have answers for their mm-hmm. issues. Right. And my salary, my livelihood depends on at least putting forth an image of having the answers. Mm. That was very difficult for me. But again, I think it's more self-inflicted. I wish I could have said, listen, I know you love me, and I know you're trying to support the ministry that we're trying to do here, but I'm hurting, Mm -hmm. and I'm lonely, and I don't feel like I can talk to anybody Mm -hmm. about what I'm going through. And so I can't possibly have answers for you because I don't even have answers for me. Right. I didn't do that, but I think I didn't do it out of pride. Yeah. I'm sure looking back now, there were people back then who would have been there for me. Mm. But I couldn't see that then. Yeah. Why why do you think that is? Why would I, you know, I'm kind of I would kind of pair it the same thing of as a pastor, who can you talk to? Why is that? Why can't we? Well, I think we buy into the myth of what a pastor is. You know, when when we think we're supposed to have all the answers, that's the expectation. I, I remember pastors literally telling me as a young pastor, 
don't share too much with your congregation Hmm. because the more they know you, the less they'll respect you. Hmm. Now, I don't know about you, Carl, but I found in my life today, the exact opposite is true. That's right. It is true. Right. I mean, the opposite is true. People crave transparency. They just want somebody to be authentic. I tell you, when I heard Paul Young say that the shack was really the story of him enduring his own great sadness and emerging from that great sadness, Mm -hmm. a sadness he inflicted upon himself by having an affair with one of his wife's best friends. Right. I didn't lose respect for Paul. I gained respect for Paul. That's right. That's right. Not because I think he should have done those things, but because he's willing to face it and talk about it. And all the things that I was struggling with back then, the key to my escape was saying it out loud to somebody who would still love me. Yeah. So is that pride or is that fear? I think it's both. Yeah. I think pride is a child of fear. Mm. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? Well, I think... I, th- I think that fear is one of our biggest things <laughs> in in Christendom or church life or whatever you want to say. I, I think we, deep down, we think if I admit how I really feel, if I admit what I've done, then I'm in in one way or another, I'm going to die. I literally feel like if I have to, and and I actually got the advice to be transparent, but I knew that didn't mean be transparent with everything. Um, I, I subtly got that message that because this person, this other pastor that told me to be transparent, also when I say I love you to him, he says, um, same to you. <laughs> oh, wow. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And, oh, that's like kissing your sister right there. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. And you, and you, you know, I, I see in those people, and I've seen it in myself that we say, yeah, I, I stole a cassette tape. That's part of my story. When I was a junior high, all of us have done stuff like that. That's what we say. That's not really what you're talking about and what I'm talking about when you say transparency. Transparency is how I'm trying to live my life now where I want to be able to admit my deepest, darkest, you know, and and not just blurt it out whenever, but there's got to be times when I can say that because I think the first um, part of healing is to be seen with eyes of grace. Yep, so absolutely. so so I have to I have to be able to say this is me. Um, this is what I've done. This is what I've been through. This is what people have done to me. And to say that and I don't die. And people don't treat me like I'm unclean. They you know and you can see those lessons in Jesus life. Right? He touched those kind of people. He reached down to them. He he looked in their eyes, and when they tried to sneak up on him and get a magic healing and run away, he stopped them, and he looked at them, right? And he, he wanted them to see, I, I love you, even no matter what you've done. Um, that That's one thing I did right with my children is 
I said to them, no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. And I know not every parent took that strategy. Some of them said, you made your bed, you're going to lie in it. I didn't ever do that. I said, no matter what you do, you can always come home. And I'll, I'll be here. I'm on your team. And, mm. you know, so um, I longed, I think, for 20 years in the church culture to see that type of relationship. And for whatever reason, a lot, of, a lot of times it was that guy that wandered into my church that I knew he was hurting, but um, he just he had so much pain mm-hmm. from his past. And, and sometimes I did see that, that the only thing that could overcome that was, was my grace. But then, you know, when I left that last church, there was an ex-pastor that was in my congregation, and he said to the, the pastor search committee, you know, we need to find somebody with less grace <laughs> next time. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I know. And, and, and you look back and you know why that guy was that way. You know, because he's experienced legalism and he's experienced graceless love, mm-hmm. if there is such a thing. Yeah. You know, but yeah, and the, the things that that um, hurt me, I think, were because Laura and I didn't know how, how else to pastor a church except to go in with our heart open. Mm-hmm. We, we just knew... Something in us knew that you can't love someone if you're, if you're guarded, you know, if your heart's not open. But too many times people didn't get their way, and they would kind of go indirectly through Laura and more often than not hurt her uh, instead of me. And so, you know, after 20 years of that, when we said last year, late last year, we're going to walk away from church, not God, but walk away from church, um, as she began to write about those experiences, I started to understand like I hadn't understood before that, um, you know, some of those things hurt, hurt her deeply, you know, and this is the place we're trying to shame people into coming to, you know? Right. Can you give me an example of something that either from you or Laura's past that, uh, an injury that you received at the church or through the hands of the church? Yeah, I, th- I think for her, and she'd be better at telling her story, but, you know, for her, a lot of times it was that uh, people wanted to be on her side because she was the pastor's wife. So they would, you know, be with her. So we're best friends. And, and it's hard to find a best friend as a pastor's wife. And so they would, they would buddy up to her. But then uh, one time this, was a lady that said, um, uh, well, I, I saw her getting out of a car. She was struggling. Um, looked like her knees were hurting or something. And I sent her a text that said, um, it, it looks like you're having some trouble. You know, are you okay? Do you feel okay? I said something as harmless as that. And this is one uh, person that we were excited because they had, we were, we'd, They'd come to the church, they'd gotten involved, thinking about getting them more involved. And um, the we had went to some events with their family, 
personally. I mean, as friends and, and uh, she was a real good friend with Laura, but she took this statement to sit, to mean that she was fat. I, I don't know how she got that. <laughs> and I just started receiving texts and she wouldn't answer my calls and started stirring up the whole church. And, but I, but I think, you know, more than that is just that she dropped Laura as a friend immediately. Um, Laura didn't do anything. And I don't know how I, my comment got misconstrued. I didn't think I did anything either. Um, but Laura experienced that repeatedly. That when, when the guy didn't get his way, you know, maybe I stood up to someone then that would that would kind of transfer back through the wife, and all of a sudden she wouldn't be talking to Laura. And these would be people that Laura thought she had made a connection with and was loving, and all of a sudden they're just not talking to you anymore. And that, that may not seem like a big thing, but it's devastating to a you know, to a pastor's wife who just craves some sort of intimacy, you know in the body and it's really hard to get. So making Well, and that kind of spiritual ghosting, that's just I mean that's control, right? I mean it's yeah. just if you're not going to do what we want, we're going to withhold ourselves from you. And obviously, like you're saying, that can happen on behalf of church members, but it also happens from pastors as well. And the 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 fatal flaw in the system is it's not built for relationships. And when fear is a part of everything that we do and touch and see, those kind of things are going to happen. Our insecurities are going to destroy every life-giving thing about that experience. Mm-hmm. And man, it sounds like y'all really went through that. Yeah. I I think, you know, probably, you know, given enough time, we could we could do 20 or 30 stories. <laughs> Of things. And, you know, I think I was a little more determined that I was, this is my career. Um, Laura didn't ever feel like she could have a voice, not because I told her not to speak, but because she was afraid that she was going to hurt the ministry. And she didn't want to be the one that brought it down, you know. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was unfortunate. I think that there was that much pain in just 20 years. Carl, if you could go back to your last pastorate, that first first weekend, would you do something differently? Is there something that you would do a different way than you actually did it when you got there that you think might have brought about a different result? Or was it just doomed to failure from the start? Yeah, I think, well, I think the core group, the people that um, started the church were very determined I think, you know, with an attitude towards homosexuals, um, with an attitude towards non-Baptist <laughs> and so on. So I think the core group was pretty determined. Um, so I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think I'd definitely go with a more Christ-centered God and uh, aggressively pursue that. I think I would be determined from the beginning to um, – uh, just be more authentic um, and be much more knowledgeable, more, much more mindful of what Laura's going through, you know, so that we could be more together. Um, yeah, this, you know, all the work of the past three years, I would incorporate back into that, including what we're going to talk about in part two, 
you know, the, the healing, the shadow work and things like that. Yeah. What other things do you want to talk about before we close up here? You, we kind of had a list to start with. We didn't uh, have a <laughs> script, <laughs> but what else right. would you say? You know, the role of women. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I think, I think not only, you know, 150 years ago, we were dealing with slavery hundred years ago with the right to vote for women, 50 years ago, so civil rights. Uh, I just think it's the last frontier that we've got to have equal rights for women. Um, Absolutely. And, and also people, uh, not even sure if it's the right term, queer people, you know, right. we've got to have equal footing for those people in the church. Um, always think about, and this may sound kind of crass, but I always think what I missed out on because someone was silenced because they had a vagina, you know, um, they, um, my, my mother, um, fortunately had somewhat of a voice, um, more than my dad. I always have had women doctors. Uh, the best supervisor I had were women, I, I just think whatever I can do um, to help push this agenda along, I, I think it's it's not only it, it would not only be good, it's necessary. It's yeah. like we've got to do it now. Um, uh, you know, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her the documentary about her. I just remember her saying that over and over again. We don't want special treatment. We just want to be equal. Right. And I think that's Yeah, I would I was thinking the same thing about what you said, Carl. How much have we missed? Mm-hmm. Think of all the sermons that could have been. Mm-hmm. Think of the changes that could have taken place. Women have always been on the forefront of of the spirit of God, in my experience. My wife is much more sensitive mm-hmm. to the leading of where we're headed than I am. I am much more resistant. I'm very stubborn that way. Mm-hmm. But if women were truly given an equal voice, I think a lot of the things that we're right now trying to pick up the pieces from the fallout of may have never taken place in the first place. But that was the damage that purity culture did, mm-hmm. at least in the context of church I grew up in. Right. Because sex was dirty. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I mean, I'm so repressed sexually, literally, I can't even have a conversation. I said in a in a Facebook Live video the other day that God did not have sex organs. And my <laughs> wife nearly passed out because I can't even talk in those terms, you know? That's right. Uh, I, I just can't. I'm, I'm so repressed in my even my speech about it mm-hmm. because I was raised with this mindset of it's dirty. It defiles you. It's going to take you down one day. And so we put up all these walls, right? Well, one of those walls was women, you sit over there and be quiet and don't draw any attention to yourself. And anything that you do that draws attention to you is probably going to lead some poor man astray. That's right. Because so you need to not only control. think about your mm-hmm. behavior, but control his behavior as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we missed out on so much yeah. in the church by pushing women to the side and saying, we've got this. Yeah. And and we did the exact same thing to people of color. We did the exact same thing to the LGBT community, mm-hmm. uh, the exact same thing. That's right. And we've missed so much yeah. of uh, revelation and prophetic insight and 
just even the perspectives that we should have been thinking through all along. We had the mm-hmm. gifts of these different types of humans right. that we've segmented and pushed to the side that would have brought a whole fresh perspective that would have been so life-giving to the church. And we missed it yeah. just out of our own pride and insecurity. Yeah. It, all those things you just mentioned. Um, I'm looking at my list. Purity culture, the role of women, um, finding my voice. Um, all of those things uh, have to do with fear and what will happen. Who's going to come over the wall? Um, you ask what I could do if I go back. I, I think if I go back to that last church, I would stand up in the pulpit every week and I'd say, it's in the Bible 360 times. So throughout the next however many years that takes, I'm going to preach every week. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Mm. Fear not. Stop letting fear uh, run your life. Um, We can't control. Even God does not control. Um, The non-controlling love of God, self-giving love of God. Fear not. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And that I think that would be my message every week. I used to say it was love, right? But it's a non right. it's a non controlling love. God's not fearful, and he and he just seems like he went out of his way to tell us not to be afraid. I think I'd do that absolutely. Well, that sounds like a church I'd want to be a part of, Carl. Yeah. But I, I really I'm afraid that if we told a church that before the deal was done, <laughs> that they'd say, you know what? I don't want to hear the same thing every Sunday. That's right. That's, that's not very entertaining. Yeah. So there's even fear in me about telling people not to be afraid. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Hey, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, we're glad that you've been here today. Um, just listen to a couple of ex-pastors rant on about um, what we, what we think should change about the world. I, I appreciate Jason, for you hanging out with me for part one and encourage people to listen in for part two. Uh, I'm going to dig a little deeper and uh, I'm frightened. (laughs) You need to tell me now, don't be afraid, Carl. Don't be afraid, Carl. All right. That's good.